Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. And I know that maybe logically, you know, like the density of memory when you're going through trauma as well, it might have only been five to 10 minutes, but in reality, it feels like hours. I just remember more than anything, like I kind of woke up with his like flaccid penis in my mouth and I couldn't like, I just remember kind of moving my head and realizing that I was on carpet and I got all of these like carpet burns on the backs of my like elbows. So his partner, comes to the balustrade and looks down and sees what's happening and she yells at him and that's what gave me that big shock. Hi survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode down. Another episode down, as you like to say. Yes, and then today we actually have a few questions from the audience. And by the way, if you're sending in questions, we want to get to them all. We try to read all your questions, guys. And you can reach out to us at SurvivorSquadPod at gmail.com. Tara, what is this week's listener question? So this person asked about how we handle relationships in our trauma. Okay. So why don't you take a crack at it? Well, I feel like this also dovetails into the fact that this weekend we are hosting a Moving Past Trauma workshop, which deals with relationships and all other aspects of trauma. And that is from 11 to 1 p.m. Pacific time, correct? Yes, I like that you got it. You got it down, Collier. Cool, so check it out. Link is in the show notes of today's episode. We'll uh, direct you over to sign up for the workshop and it's gonna be great, right, right, Tara? Yeah, no, and it's only $40, so it's a steal in my opinion, because this one, I just wanted to get it out for anyone that needed it. Yes, and we get a lot of these questions, so it's like, let's just let's just get to it. But anyways, we all deal with baggage, right? Yeah. From our past relationships, whether those relationships are with our, you know, our family members growing up, or the dysfunctionality that we experience there, or whether that's in past romantic relationships, or even friendships or platonic relationships, it all just kind of comes to the surface when you're in a relationship that is romantic and you have a partner. It all just seems to come to the surface, which is why you got to get a hold on it, in my opinion. So what are some of the ways that you do that, Tara? So I think that it's really important to be aware of your triggers and also be aware of your partner's triggers. I agree. And if that's something where it's like, okay, I notice this, uh, my partner gets a little bit frazzled when, um, say a car comes around, you know, um, it's just like noticing that your partner reacts a certain way with certain things and trying to avoid triggering your partner in any way, you know, where I think it's really important to have communication and always communicate with one another, but try to be careful with re-triggering them. Sure. And you said car comes around. So maybe if they were in a car accident or something like that, or they had a bad experience, or if they were riding a motorcycle and got cut off by a car one day, I wouldn't know who that could be. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Trauma, triggers, early childhood triggers and trauma. Who is our guest today? We have Madeline Heather. She is amazing. She was raped when she was 14 years old in Australia. And it was unfortunate that it happened to her, but fortunate that it was able to get 
handled by the police in a sense. I don't know. She was intoxicated as well by this gentleman who was feeding her and her friends drinks. It's just, it was a family friend, and but she has turned it into a point of advocacy through her podcast, Reclaim Me, which we will have links to that in the show notes of today's episode. But let's get to our interview with Madeline Heather. Yes, let's get into part one. Thank you for joining our program so much. Yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's get into your story and your journey today. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, yeah, when I was like 13, 14, I was an elite gymnast. So I used to go to school in the city to an all-girls school, which was about an hour away from where my family and I lived. Um, sadly, I got quite a bad injury to my back. I fractured my back and then I retired at the ripe old age of 13 and ended up kind of moving back home because I didn't have to go into the city for gymnastics anymore. It made sense for me to move schools and go back closer to home when my brother and sister went to school. So I basically came back at the start of a new year and it was a co-ed school and it was just a really new environment. And it was, I'm trying to like highlight, I guess, that it was a big period of change for me. Like I've gone, I'd gone from being like an elite athlete training 35 hours a day with, you know, only associating with the gymnasts that I trained with because we would go to school together to now having a whole situation where I don't really have any friends. I'm trying to make new friends. Um, and you, you lose a lot of purpose, I think in your life as well. I know that you're young, but when you've had this thing your whole life, you're looking for a lot of validation, I guess it was a really difficult time. And to be honest, it actually still is kind of trying to cope with what life is like, not as an athlete anymore. And where does the purpose and stuff come from? Um, so yeah, basically I went back and I think it was probably been there for like a term or something like a couple of months and. Uh, one of the girls that I had made friends with, um, we we were kind of rebels. And I think that kind of feeds into that kind of vibe where maybe I'm trying to find myself and I'm trying to be cool, like really emphasizing on the trying to be cool kind of thing. So her dad had kind of basically said like, he's a cool dad, they're divorced, him, her parents, and he was going to allow me and two others, no, me and one other, so her and two of us, three total to go over to his house for a sleepover on the Friday night. And it was really like, we were really excited about this because it was like, finally, we're like 14 now. We are so um, mature for our age. We're going to go drinking and it's going to be so much fun. Like we're amazing. You know what I mean? Like you've got that like moment where you like, you're 14, but you think that you know the world. And then you look back on it as like a nearly 30 year old now. And I'm just like, my God. You were a baby. Um, So, yeah, basically that kind of that night came and we were all really excited and we kind of got to the house and we started to get ready because we were going to go catch up with a couple of the boys from the school. One of them ended up becoming my my boyfriend in that last in the the year after that. Um, 
So basically we were getting all dressed up and everything. Actually, I go back, my mum dropped me off and my mum had never met this um, dude before. Um, and he was there with his partner. So they were having a beer or whatever when we arrived and she was just a little bit funny. She had that gut instinct that wasn't really okay with me going. So she went up and she goes, you know what, you're getting a little bit older now. You know, I do trust you. Um, she spoke to this guy and he was like, no, 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 they're just going to stay in and they're going to watch a movie, like lied to her face. He knew that he'd bought us like 12 double black cruisers, which are like uh, like lolly drinks, but they've got the extra alcohol in them. So 14, I'm like, that's way too much alcohol. Like a Smirnoff ice kind of? Yeah, yeah, okay. like that. So like the stronger alcohol kind of versions of the lolly drinks. And basically, um, yeah, she didn't have a really good feeling, but she goes like, he's answered all of the questions. Her other friend is here. The partner is here. Um, Maddie has a phone. If something goes wrong, she can kind of call me. You know, I think she tried to talk herself out of the gut feeling that she had. So she left and then literally as soon as the door closed, he walked straight to the fridge and got the drinks out. Like, and we were all upstairs getting ready. Um, and I just, I don't remember really conversing with them very much. We kind of got ready and then we were going to go out into like the little courtyard outside the house um, and meet these guys because they lived in like this town square kind of bit. So they were really close to all of the local shops it was quite late at night at this time, so there weren't people mulling about. So we, like the losers that we, we were, kind of took the drinks out and were drinking on the street kind of thing. And he got really frustrated and angry. Like he went from this really cool, cool and in inverted commas kind of dad vibe to being like, you can't go out and you're not allowed to see these boys. You're not allowed to hang out with them. Um, and he became really super controlling. And he's like, you're only allowed to stay in the house. So he called us back. We weren't allowed to talk to them or anything. And then we all sat in the living room and we ended up kind of like hanging out together. Um, we finished the drinks. He was absolutely shit-faced himself. Um, I don't know where his partner was, but she kind of left towards the end of the night. And obviously my my memory trauma as well, but drinking too does become patchy at times. And she had gone to bed at some stage and he decided to take us to the drive-thru bottle shop to get some more drinks because we'd run out. So we went back, we got some more drinks, and that's kind of where my memory really starts to fade because, I mean, at this stage I think I would have had six to eight, you know, double-strength drinks the first time I've ever drank. And then I woke up, and this is a trigger warning bit, I woke up um, in this, like, living room area of – like the house and I, it's kind of like got this old school kind of 80s rough carpet and I just remember being on my back without any pants on with a top with just a bra on and he was sexually assaulting me and he continued to do that as I kind of waned in and out of consciousness and understanding kind of what was happening for what felt like hours and I know that maybe logically, you know, like the density of memory when you're going through trauma as well, it might have only been five to ten minutes, but in reality it feels like hours. Um, and I just remember more than anything, like I kind of woke up with his like flaccid penis in my mouth and I couldn't like, I just remember kind of moving my head and 
realizing that I was on carpet and I got all of these like carpet burns on the backs of my like elbows and things. And I was just trying to wriggle away, but not fully pushing him off me because I didn't, I was just trying to get away, not fight him. And it was really kind of confusing to try and understand what was happening, come out of like a drunken haze and, and that. And, you know, I got this big shock as well, because if you kind of like imagine that this is like an open living room kitchen area and there's a staircase that kind of goes off that up and there's like a balustrade at the top. So his partner comes to the balustrade and looks down and sees what's happening and she yells at him and that's what gave me that big shock. And she was like, what the fuck are you doing? And screams at him. And then she goes back to bed. Like, I don't know why she went back. But anyway, she came back a second time and that's when it stopped. So she ran down the stairs. She was the one who called the police. And he kind of was just standing there. I don't know where he got pants from, but he found his pants somewhere or he put underwear or something on. Um, and then, yeah, the police were called. And we, the place that they were staying at was very close to the police station. So, you know, I had a very unique experience, I guess, in this instance where I've got immediate police intervention. Um, and so while the police are coming, I couldn't find my phone and all I could think of was I want to call my friends because they weren't here at this point. And I was confused, as I'm sure most people are listening to this, like, where are my friends at this stage? You know, like it was dark. Where did they go? They're not in bed. They were gone because the moment that I had lost consciousness or was drunk enough to be, I guess, compliant, malleable, easy to manipulate, he had said to them that they could go hang out with those guys. So, you know, looking back on it, the police ended up saying that they thought that he was an opportunistic offender that made him less likely to re-offend, et cetera, et cetera. But in my personal opinion, I think that that night was designed around getting me specifically under his control by getting me drunk and then waiting for that opportunity. Like it just seemed like there was a lot of circumstances. He was fixated on me specifically from the beginning. He was plying me with alcohol the whole time. And the moment that he had the control and access, that was okay for the other two to leave. You know, like he couldn't say, Maddie, you stay. The other two, you can go at the beginning. But if he goes, oh, look, she's sick, just leave her here. You might as well just go hang out with those guys that you want to be friends with kind of thing, go for it. So they left me there. And I know that they, one of the girls had a lot of guilt for leaving me there. As a 14-year-old, that's really, like, sad. Like, it wasn't her fault that that happened. Um, you know, you just trust kind of the adults in the room. Hi, survivors. I want to take a break to tell you about our friends over at Navigating Advocacy Podcast. It is a true crime podcast that seeks to use the power of storytelling to raise awareness about unsolved crimes and bring justice to victims and their families through action-oriented advocacy. Hosted by Melissa and Whitney, who themselves started as true crime enthusiasts and have since become passionate advocates, their podcast aims to inspire action and promote positive change in the criminal justice system. Their mission is to provide a platform for victims and their families to share their stories and be heard while offering practical guidance on how listeners can make a difference in their communities. In each episode, they explore a different unsolved case in depth, 
highlighting key details and potential leads in an effort to spark new interest and help advance the investigation. Through their work, they hope to create a community of like-minded individuals who are committed to making a real difference in the fight for justice. Whether you are a seasoned true crime fan or a newcomer to the genre, go and check out our friends over at Navigating Advocacy. I had gotten them to call off the landline phone to try and find my phone. So again, like I'm not fully fleeing this situation at this stage. I'm really still trying to understand what's going on. And I'm thinking, I just need my phone. I don't know anybody's mobile numbers or home phone numbers kind of thing. Like I need to get my phone. So they called it. I found it. At some stage, I was able to run and find some of my like school pants because it was sports day. So we have uniforms that we wear at school. And on sport days where you've got sport occurring, you wear like trackies kind of thing. But these were like, do you remember those like 80s style jackets that are like parachute kind of material? They're that material. The, you know when you walk and you can hear like going to go So Yeah, like a bomber jacket. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, that kind of material. And I just remember that so vividly because I remember putting them on and hearing that noise. So I'll never wear another pair of pants with that material again. And it's just those weird funny triggers that you find yourself having years later where you, you just realize that you can't wear a certain material because it's got that sound and that feel. Um, and then, yeah, we went back to the police station and I was in tracksuit pants, those trackies. I'd put underwear on and I'd, I just had a bra on still. And it was freezing cold. I'm at back in like a room at the police station. I'm calling my friends. They didn't believe me immediately. Um, why would they? You know what I mean? And I was sitting in the back of the police station for, again, what felt like hours in my bra. Like I didn't have anybody give me a jumper or a blanket or um, anything like a cardigan or anything that you would think that they would logically give you to protect you and make you feel safe in this moment. Like, yeah. Um, they, yeah, I'm just sitting there freezing my like my butt off in the, in this bra in a police station with a bunch of like white old men as well. Like it was a bit. Looking back on it now, that one thing really frustrates me quite a lot that I had to go through that. Um, this woman police officer, she was wonderful, and she just goes to me, you know, if you need to go to the toilet, I will come with you because we need to start thinking about collecting evidence and bless her soul. Like I just dropped the toilet paper out of habit into the toilet and she tackled me off the toilet. So I'm on the ground like up against like the wall and stuff. And she saved it to be fair. And she was like, look, she didn't really explain to me what she was doing, but looking back now, I know that she was trying to preserve evidence. And I think that was pretty fantastic that she tried to do that. Um, My parents were called, I think I remember saying to the um, to the police, like, don't call my parents. And it wasn't like I wanted, I thought that I was going to get in trouble. It was like I didn't want my dad to, like, kill this guy. And I was embarrassed, like horrified. So if I may, how old was this gentleman? Um, I think he would have been in his mid-40s. Like, I don't know, like he's like a, a guy that had – like leathery skin from working outside in construction his whole life. He was a beer drinker and a smoker and he had that kind of disgusting, the smell as well of that like constant cigarette smoker and constant beer drinker, you know, that kind of, yeah, that's what he smelled like as well. 
<clears throat> I, I'm, I'm like outraged. I, I'm sorry. I'm having this reaction where I'm just outraged and I'm just so sad for you. But also just like he could have killed you. He literally could have killed you too with poisoning you with alcohol. Yeah, apparently, and I don't remember this, but apparently I'd vomited in the sink at some stage and like blocked the sink or something and I don't don't remember doing that. And I, I remember like one of the things I really had to grapple with was trying to trust people because, you know, we really did think that this was like the cool dad. It's like this is the cool guy like kind of thing and then to have that happen and then to have the realisation as you're growing up that, Probably likely not only was this um, something that he had planned, do you know what I mean, but something that like my mum has had to deal with as well, the fact that she didn't trust her gut and she tried to talk herself out of it. So there's a lot of ripple effects I think on the pond there where you've got a lot of question marks around just one person's bloody actions. Like it didn't have to happen. He didn't have to do that to me and, you know, it was, it was fucking, it was horrible. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I mean, that is the interesting thing that, that caught me off guard when you were first telling us this is that the police came in and they said, oh, it seems like he's an opportunistic offender. Like they said that like initially? No, I think they, they said that like later. They said that, I think, I don't know if they said that to me, but I think that they said that to my mum maybe and then I've since gotten police reports and stuff that have stated um, different things down the track. But I think, you know, when I when I look back on it thinking that they've got this profile of this person, of this type of offender, you know, I don't think, you know, an opportunistic means it doesn't just have to mean that you find an you come across an opportunity. Um but I do believe that he created one. And at the same time, I think that in that situation, that doesn't, it calls into question this whole thing. So he didn't end up getting as enough time. I think in Australia, one of the things I do want to push for is different types of sentencing changes because they're a little bit of a joke. Um, but for that to be taken into consideration that he's not been caught before. So it's not whether he's offended before, it's whether he's been caught before. Um, and then... Yeah, to say that he potentially poses less of a threat to the community because it was an opportunistic effect. Uh, it was opportunistic. He's not a preferential sex offender kind of thing. That frustrated me because I felt like there wasn't enough evidence and there wasn't enough information to go into that. Maybe he wasn't a preferential child sex offender. You know, I was post pubescent as well. So that still doesn't make it any less of a crime against a child. But at the same time, it is, I feel like it's a misrepresentation of the, the risk that somebody poses to the community if they've created the opportunity on top of everything. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing up there in Canberra, but they definitely have <laughs> some very archaic laws when dealing with these things. I've, I've been made privy to this from others in Oz that it, it it's <laughs> so a lot of justifications that go in. And then the sentencing is like a slap on the wrist, it feels like. Yeah, I actually read a really good article the other day that was um, amazing and it called it the decriminalization of sexual assault in Australia. Um, I think currently less than 1% of cases are ever going through to prosecution. And even when prosecuted, 
there are a lot more non-custodial sentences that you would see happening. And I think it goes back to that whole recidivism, um, I guess, understanding. I, I understand that that maybe a custodial sentence might not be the best way to rehabilitate somebody, but also where's the justice for a victim who's had to go through months, if not years, of trying to seek justice for something and somebody gets a good behaviour bond for sexually assaulting them? Like that's not an okay situation to be with. Like that we have essentially in many cases decriminalised assaulting women and children. Yeah, that's so terrible. Obviously, with the laws and the decriminalization, in a sense, I mean, it isn't decriminalized, but if they're not going to do anything about it, it essentially is. Is sexual assault a rampant problem in Oz? I think that it is everywhere, and I think that we don't fully know and understand what's going on. I mean, I just read a case study the other day that was talking about penetrative, penetrative sexual assaults, and I think that the ambiguity that we need to consider as well is that that relies on reporting because it was based off reports. So they're not going to crisis centres, they're not going to hotlines, they're not going to hospitals, they're going to reports. So we know that less than 20% of cases will ever report, less than 1% of those will ever seek a, a prosecution. We don't know. And there are circumstances where I've spoken to people where they don't realise that they've not only crossed a boundary but sexually assaulted somebody because there's been a lapse in consent, a removal of consent and somebody's continued. It doesn't always have to be this situation and I count myself lucky in many ways because this, bar the drinking, is me being the perfect victim. I'm I'm white, I'm articulate, Um it was in a dark room by a stranger. Um, I had physical marks on me because I had tried to get away. Like I fit the stereotype that unfortunately only validates my story and there are so many people whose aren't and that's quite a difficult thing to kind of consider with that as well. And I don't want to say lucky because lucky, it's, it's the wrong word to use but I'm very conscious of that when people listen to my story and I, that I did get justice as well, somewhat. <laughs> like that's the frustrating thing too. We don't know the whole volume of it. Uh, you know, I say the same thing about myself, uh, even the, including the lucky part, but I do also talk about like, I was abandoned by my family during uh, all of this because I essentially, um, you know, was the one who reported my father and who led investigators to find, ultimately find my mother's body in another state. But um, I was remanded to the foster care system. And I always say to people, because foster care was horrible, and I say to people, I said, yeah, and I'm a good-looking white kid. You know, think about what, you, you know, and my experience wasn't favorable. What do you think of with other people? My ethnic minorities or, 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 you know, even impoverished individuals that are remanded custody, parents or drug addicts, whatever that is, right? And the, and the abuse or the neglect or the, just the experience that they have is, is less than, <laughs> less than desirable for sure. And it's like, you know, you talk about yourself as a perfect victim and yeah. And then you're like, and nothing was really, there was still all this leniency granted. Why don't you tell us, though, about how all this then continued to to unfold? Yeah, so we went into um, 
some kind of room where my parents were brought in at the police station and my mum's reaction, I think they said, did he rape you? And I said, yes. And my mum's reaction was to kind of cry, obviously, and my dad's reaction was to comfort her and then he just lost his shit and was like, I'm going to kill him, where am I going to find him? Um, you know, the Macho Manly thing, she's crying. I'm like on the floor by myself over in the corner kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? I felt, I think that it, there's no playbook and this is when I talk to people whose parents have contacted me, for example, saying that their children have gone through something similar, what can they do? And I want people to learn from those experiences because, you know, I understand that my dad felt that way and that my mum felt that way. But, you know, the first priority should have been giving me a hug and making yeah. me feel safe and secure and giving me a top. I still at this time I'm in a, in a bloody bra. So, you know, looking back, it's just frustrating. And that's their immediate responses and I understand that. But it goes even back to like when somebody discloses to you, for example, you know, being compassionate, being loving, don't tell them what to do, don't whatever, just be there, you know, and I think that was a really difficult thing for me as well. Um, I think that he had the the uh, the perpetrator had he had been locked up in a room in an interview room down the hall after they or when they had kind of the police had arrived. I'd run outside during that stage. Apparently, she'd attacked him, her his partner, with a set of scissors or something. So he'd had some cuts and stuff. So I believe he was going to the hospital as well. So they had these amazing. Uh, sexual assault kind of response teams in Australia called Socket. At the time it was called SOCAL, which is Sexual Offences and Crimes Against Children kind of task force team things. Um, and these two women in like big black trench coats and suits and stuff came to pick me up and they drove me to the uh, to the Royal Children's Hospital, I think that it was. Okay. Um, so they're driving me and I'm in the back seat at the same time, I think I've just got a bra on. I'm freezing cold. And I remember that's the first time I heard the song Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie. And that was for years a trigger for me as well. Like it's the first time I'd ever heard it. I'm listening to it in the back of this car on the way to the hospital. It was just something that only a couple of years ago could I actually listen to it. And that was a big milestone for me kind of in my healing journey. Um, so I went into a uh, hospital um, we, I went into an exam room with this pregnant woman who was doing the sexual assault kit and she was really lovely. And I, as, as horrible as an experience as it is to have to be swabbed all over your body and to have to be re-interviewed by somebody, because as a medical professional, they have to ask you so many questions to get evidence. So it could be, um, like, where did he kiss you? So he had kissed me on my neck and my face and they're, they're, they're swabbing my breasts and they're swabbing everywhere, inside of me, outside of me. And it isn't the nicest experience, obviously, um, especially having to retell somebody what had happened. But she was so calm and non-judgmental and she talked me through everything and she asked for my consent before she did every single swab. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, I think it's just trauma-informed care. So she's yeah. kind of saying, I'm going to swab here now, okay? Is that okay with you? And I would say yes every single time. And I was in there for at least an hour. So they took a heap of uh, collections from my body. I think they'd taken a bit of my hair. I think they had taken uh, fingernail clippings, pictures of the abrasions on my arms and things like that as well. So it's a full workup. And it is quite invasive having somebody take photos of your naked body, but, it, you know, 
There was also a police member present, I believe, in the room, but not watching. So I think they just have to be there or something. I'm not sure, actually, to be honest. But, um, yeah, and then I went home. This concludes part one of our two-part episode. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.